Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right, Dr. Johnson, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing very well. Um, great Thursday afternoon. Um, so I'm excited about today's topic. We're going to be talking about the pathway to cerebrovascular and endovascular surgery, um, certainly for medical students, residents, and anyone else interested in the path. And we have a great lineup. Um, we actually have three guests today, um, Dr. Adam Arthur, Dr. David Dornbos, and Dr. Tyler Lazaro. Um, I'll start with Dr. Arthur. He's a cerebrovascular an endovascular neurosurgeon at Sems Murphy Clinic and the University of Tennessee, and is the current fellowship director of the vascular neurosurgery program. He completed his residency training at Utah and fellowship in Memphis, and previously was the president of the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. Dr. Arthur, how are you today? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. Next is Dr. David Dornbos. He's the current fellow at Sems Murphy Clinic and the University of Tennessee in cerebrovascular endovascular neurosurgery. He completed his residency training at the, the Ohio State University before traveling to Memphis and is the current vice chair of the Young Neurosurgeons Committee. Dr. Dorian Bruce, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you. And finally, Dr. Tyler Lazaro is a fourth-year neurosurgery resident at Baylor College of Medicine. He is interested in subspecializing in endovascular and cerebrovascular neurosurgery. And so him and Dr. Johnson will probably be um, taking the bulk of directing this conversation today as they have a better understanding of the process and the questions to ask. Um, so Dr. Johnson, I will let you take the reins and talk about why this is important and then get into the different factors that people interested in this subspecialty should be thinking about. Great, thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, we wanted to have this conversation for a few reasons. One is that uh, I myself am a supervascular trained neurosurgeon, and I get a lot of questions from other folks that are interested in this path about how to go about uh, the timing and the logistics of fellowships and how to think about them. It's a bit of a confusing a confusing lay of the land if you've never gone through it, and these things are typically passed down through mentor to mentee, but we thought it would be good to stop and perhaps put this out into, into the general public a little bit for folks to uh, understand a little bit more clearly earlier, potentially. So there's, there's a couple of things we wanted to cover. One is the timeline and, um, and, and what you need to be to be both successful and competitive in the fellowships and then what type of fellowships are there. So thanks for coming, Tyler and, uh, and Adam, and, um, and let's see if we can get through some of these questions. So the first round I would ask of Dr. Arthur, um, which is uh, you were a fellowship director. So I wanted to kind of hear an, a brief overview of what is your fellowship like, and, and that will then lead into the different types of fellowships are there, if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through that. There's generally the open, endo, and combined. I'd just like to hear your thoughts on sort of the state of the fellowships out there and, and, and an overview of those things. Sure. So uh, I finished residency in 2004. And at that time, there were relatively few neurosurgeons like you, uh, JJ, who, who really are comfortable both with microneurosurgery and what at that time was really best known as interventional neuroradiology. And so I was looking for something that was hard to find, which was a really high volume, well-mentored two-year comprehensive fellowship where I could focus on microsurgical uh, treatment of vascular problems and also do really at that point, which was what was inter interventional neuroradiology. Um, Jefferson and Buffalo were the two really well-established neurosurgical centers. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, I, I worried I wouldn't get everything I wanted uh, at those places. And so I ended up in Memphis. Um, since then, creating the fellowship program has been uh, wish fulfillment. So I've been trying to build the fellowship I, I, I wanted. And, and so what we have is um, the opportunity to see a tremendous amount of, of disease in a lot of cases. I think the first thing uh, that you need if you're going to train on anything is experience. You can't get that without significant case experience. So 
if you look at CDC data on stroke, Memphis is sort of the buckle on the stroke belt. It looks like a nuke went off here, and, and that's probably accurate. And, and, and so um, we, we got a lot of disease prevalence, and then we're, we're fortunate in that at the moment, we, we really are able to provide services to all of the healthcare entities in the region that want to do comprehensive uh, neurodivascular and open vascular services. So there aren't a lot of other, you know, million type communities, million person communities that has really one group. We're, we're a little unique there. And then we've got a multidisciplinary uh, group. We are this July hiring our eighth neuroendovascular specialist. Wow. Four surgeons, three neurologists, and, and kind of maybe nine, kind of two radiologists who all do neurointervention uh, and work um, by and large together. And um, then to, to really make it even more insane, we've added in a six-month rotation in Sydney, Australia. So currently our fellowship is 18 months in Memphis and six months at Prince of Wales and Liverpool hospitals at Sydney with Jason Wenderoff, Andrew Chung, and Nathan Manning, who are fantastic, high volume, you know, neurointerventionalists, they're radiologists, but they also get devices and get experience with devices well before anyone in the U.S. does because of regulatory issues. So uh, that's obviously on hold now because we're dealing with a worldwide viral pandemic, but that international experience I think is pretty invaluable and I have you know, stories and good things to tell you about our, our fellow who's done that recently. So that's the state of our fellowship here. The other part of the question, if I remember correctly, was, you know, what are the different fellowships? And you mentioned that Tyler wanted to do open and endovascular. My perspective on that is that our practice here involves open and endovascular. You know, one of our fellows took out an AVM today. Another fellow uh, did an M1, a symptomatic M1 angioplasty and stenting. I don't even know what other cases were done today, probably a bunch. But our practice involves a lot of carotid endodirectomy. It involves bypass. It involves cavernomas. So I feel like the training environment that we offer is a good way to become a comprehensively trained uh, neurosurgeon who does both open and endovascular. Now, would I tell you that it's a terrible idea to go spend a year with Mike Lawton as you did? No, absolutely not. The guy's freaking amazing. And the, the microvascular experience you get there, you know, vicious uh, Srinivasan's there now. It's fantastic. You know, I, I have a, a graduated resident who's currently spending a year with Jacques Morcos. Amazing experience, you know. But I don't know that you have to do that uh, to be an open vascular neurosurgeon. I, I think there are places, and I think Memphis is one of them, uh, where you really do get the opportunity to do a lot of open vascular neurosurgery uh, during that time. Now, it gets complicated in terms of how you're going to build it, right? Because are you doing infolded time? Are you doing two one-year fellowships? Are you doing a one-year fellowship and a two-year fellowship? You know, how does it all work? And different people can make different uh, choices. There are different ways to skin this cat. I like offering this two-year fellowship. Uh, I feel like, you know, David is in uh, sort of the, the end of his first quarter of his second year. And I love the second year. I mean, it is so much fun to see the change in, in David uh, and the growth that occurs. Um, so I don't, I don't want a one-year uh, fellowship. I, I want a two-year fellowship because I think there's a lot to be gained uh, during that time. But can you get away with a one-year fellowship? Sure. You know, I, I, just, I just think there are pros and cons to different choices um, in this training milieu. No, that's great. I mean, I think as an overview there for the for the folks listening, there there's 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 a group of fellowships that are really just endovascularly focused, and then there's a group of fellowships that are just cerebrovascular focused. So if you want to do one two fellowships in an open and endovascular, and you end up matching or, or going to do an endovascular only fellowship, and you may have to go to another institution to do an open, or of course you could just choose to do an open endovascular. And then if you're very well trained at your training program and open, you may feel comfortable doing that as a, as a dual trained or what, like we're calling now a comprehensive endovascular and cerebrovascular neurosurgeon. Or you can have a combined fellowship, which is an excellent experience as well. There's multiple like that. Uh, and then there are some people uh, that, that actually don't want to do endovascular. They want to focus on skull base and cerebrovascular. Um, and and they, in those cases, they would not even need to do an endovascular fellowship, they would just do something like Dr. Morcos or, or Harry Van Loveren, or there's a series of these combined um, endovascular, I'm sorry, open vascular skull-based fellowships. And, and which one you choose is really is a little bit up to the person and what they want to do in their career. But for the folks that want to do specialty vascular, 
I think in my opinion, you have to, with the exception of a handful of open vascular slash skull-based positions out there, I think I think you need to do endo and open. And the only question is, is whether you pursue the independent endovascular postgraduate year of training plus an open vascular at this similar or, or different lo location or a combined program, which I think all of them are probably going to get you to the same endpoint. Um, it's just it's just it's just a way of expressing this to people that don't know this process. All right, I'm going to bring. Um, David in and see um, and see what his thoughts are on on the the combined fellowship experience. Uh, any any sort of thing that you can give the listeners as to is what your experience has been like doing the combined program. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, combined fellowship is the only one that I know. Uh, so I can't really speak much to an endo or an open uh, vascular specific fellowship, but. Uh, combined fellowship was really, that was all I was looking for. Uh, the fellowships I, I looked around at were all combined fellowships. And really just in, in my mind, that's the way that my eventual practice is going to be. Uh, I mean, right now I am working in both open and uh, endovascular fields. And the patients that we see when they come in, I mean, we're making decisions at that time uh, that are not isolated to either open only to open or only to endovascular treatment options. It's the, it's the full gambit. Uh, and no matter what is decided, no matter what's best for that patient, uh, we're going to be able to help take care of that patient and kind of get that, just that experience. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's how, that's how you're going to practice. That's why I wanted to, to do it this way. That's when I get out of here and I'm a comprehensive trained uh, vascular neurosurgeon, I'll be the one making the decision to, take them to the OR and do an open craniotomy for clipping or take them to uh, the angio suite and, and uh, use an endovascular treatment option to, to take care of them. And also, I mean, I'll be the one that's, that's juggling having a patient that's going in for craniotomy for clipping and then a stroke comes in and screws up your entire day. And just having, being able to, to juggle that and get that experience, I think on the, on the fellow training side before you're the one that's that's making the actual decisions. Having that experience from a training standpoint, I think is from my standpoint is, is invaluable and has been been very helpful. And just just for clarification for, for people who may be interested, on a granular level, how do you spend your time training? Do you every day is different or do you have certain days you do open, certain days you do endo, or one year you do open, one do you do endo? How do you how do you structure that? Yeah. It's uh, every day is different. Uh, there's not a specific day or week or anything. Uh, there's not even really a specific rotation that we that we utilize. Um, as Dr. Arthur mentioned, we've got uh, four fellows here at the moment. In normal times, one of us would be in Australia, but given COVID, uh, all four of us are here, which is fine. The volume here is, is not an issue uh, at all. And we really, between me and my co-fellow, we kind of divvy up uh, what our plan is for the, the following day, uh, usually the night before. And that's really where we kind of decide which cases uh, benefit our education uh, the best and then also make sure everybody gets, gets adequate coverage. But it really is, it's a it's a day-to-day -day thing. And as I'm sure uh, you, Jeremiah, know, and Dr. Arthur knows well, uh, vascular, your plan for the following vascular day typically is not what actually occurs. Uh, there's strokes that come in, there's ruptures that come in all the time. Uh, it, 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 whatever plan you make is, is nice in theory, but it, it's likely going to go haywire. Uh, and that's really, that's kind of how we, how we do it. It's, it's how your practice is going to be. It's how your career is going to go. So getting used to accommodating all the, uh, all the surprises that come up is, is I think helpful from a training standpoint. Um, but yeah, but to answer your question, we, we really, everything is, is intermixed. We do open one day, we do endo the next day. Sometimes we do them both in the same day and then do clinic in the afternoon. It, uh, it really is just, we're, the volume here is, is really good. So we're just kind of running from, case to case, making sure we take care of patients well and, and really just get as good of an experience as we possibly can. That's great. And uh, just for the, the the opposite viewpoint to some degree, I did two fellowships, one in endovascular. So I spent a year just doing endovascular. Uh, is this one year in open? Um, and, and I think it gets you to the same point in the end, um, but it does give you a year to really focus on those techniques exclusively. I don't think it's a right or a wrong way. I think they both, like I said, get you to the same endpoint, um, but it is a different way of doing it. Uh, I was going to bring Tyler in and ask, uh, let him ask Dr. Dr. Arthur a little bit of the more 
um, pointed questions about how to go about doing your fellowship application. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Tyler and see, see if he can give some of Dr. Arthur's feedback on, on that process. Uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Johnson and uh, Dr. Arthur for, for being here. Um, so, I, I mean, from a trainee standpoint, uh, I think we're all very used to a high amount of structure in medical training. And so uh, to not find, you know, another ERAS or online application process to fill out makes me a little bit anxious. And so I guess, how, do, how, do you, how does a trainee begin the process of applying for fellowship in, in any combination of the endovascular, cerebrovascular fellowships? Um, and um, I guess, when does that start would be my question. So I would hope that eventually neurointerventional surgery or neuroendovascular surgery really is its own residency. Um, I think it's, it's the most explosive area in medicine, but we're in the now, and now it is a multidisciplinary specialty that is populated by people whose initial training was in either radiology or neurology or neurosurgery for the most part. And because of that, we don't yet have a match, and it's really a scramble. I, I am hopeful that we will have a match by maybe 2024 or 2025, um, uh, there's, there's, there's work being done, uh, but we don't at the moment. So it's all over the place. I, I think the most competitive fellowships, um, and I'm proud to say ours has become one of those, fill uh, on average three years in advance. Um, and then there are other fellowships that fill two years in advance, one year in advance, and then there's usually a position or two open at the last minute because someone decides they don't want to do vascular or something else. But we have candidates uh, already nailed down for 2021 to 2023, 2022 to 2024, and 2023 to 2025, um, and are getting applications now for 2024 to 2026. So uh, I think you know, neurosurgery in some ways, although it may be anxiety provoking for you, is lucky in that with a seven year residency, you do have some time to figure out what you wanna do in advance. I feel particularly bad for the neurologists because, you know, by the time they figure out that they might wanna do neurointervention, the fellowships are filled uh, by and large. And, and that applies to a lesser extent for radiology. So I think for the purpose of fellows, a match would be uh, a really good thing. Uh, at this point, there are 54 CAS certified programs. I, I would think most of those programs would be willing to participate in a match. So really it's word of mouth. I mean, Tyler, you've got some great mentors at Baylor. Um, you can talk to them. You can uh, go to the, the, the courses that are available. Um, uh, I'm involved in the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation and the, the courses we have for residents are something I've spent a lot of time on. I'm very proud of them. Obviously, COVID has made that difficult, but um, you meet people, you talk to people, you find out, and then it's very easy to email people. I, I get emails most days from people uh, interested in fellowship. Now, a lot of them are um, foreign trained uh, physicians looking to come to the U.S. And at this point in time, we're not accepting foreign trained physicians. Our fellowship, and I think this is a really relatively unusual thing, our fellowship is for attendings. Um, so uh, people have to get independent licenses to be neurosurgeons, neurologists, or radiologists in Tennessee to be the fellows. And so it's hard to do that if you trained in India or Iran or Egypt or wherever. Um, so I end up writing a lot of emails trying to be nice about saying, no, sorry, I, I don't have anything for you. Um, but you, uh, at this point, I think would be uh, well-versed to talk to people uh, that will give you their time and their opinion come up with a list of the programs you're interested in and write it inquire uh, about um, what the application process is like for that place and how you apply. For us, we ask that um, somebody send a letter of interest, a CV, and have three letters of recommendation sent. We ask that the applicants waive their right to see the letters of recommendation in the vain hope that that means we'll get some honesty from the recommenders. And then uh, based on those data, we, prior to COVID, would invite a few people uh, to Memphis to interview. Now we're you know, doing that over Zoom. Um, we generally try to make sure that the applicants can meet our current fellows um, away from the attendings. 
um, to get some candid, you know, feedback. See our case conference. We have a multidisciplinary case conference on Wednesdays and we go over cases. I think it's good for them to see how we interact. Um, every place has its own culture and then go from there. So um, Adam, in an ideal situation, what PGY year is someone emailing you and what part of that year, like halfway through PGY four? I'd say early in four. Early in four. So it's like kind of like now's the time uh, for Tyler since he's early. Yeah, which is hard. I mean, I, I have this conversation with my residents too, right? You put your head down in the two and three year, you know, the classic saying is the, uh, the nights are long, but the years are short. And, and before you know it, it's like, well, what are you going to do when you finish residency? It's like, what? I just got here. What am I doing? So uh, I do think it's important to start to think about what you want out of your career and make a plan. And you absolutely can still get a very good fellowship program if you don't really start into it until the second half of your fifth year. But you're not going to get some places um, uh, that late. Um, but your fellowship is roughly on the same timeline as the ones I, as I did postgraduate. So yes. uh, what is too late for your, for you? When do you cut off receiving applications? And I realize it'll be different for every, for every program. But. Well, one of the luxuries of not having a match is I don't have to make that kind of decision. I mean, when we get an application and meet somebody that we really like, we can offer them a job whenever the heck we want and they can accept or say that they're not ready to accept and they want to interview at another place. So we're really truly rolling, you know, for 2023 to 2025, uh, we met a resident um, who was interested early on. He seemed very clear that this is what he wanted to do. And we offered him a spot really early and he took it. And then the second 23 to 2025, it was like a year and a half before we nailed that down. And it ended up being like seven, eight people, you know, competing for that one spot. And then we just, you know, offered that. So it, I apologize, but the answer to your question varies depending on the year. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, a sim- some places that just have one spot, I think have a little bit more of a timeline where they accumulate and decide. But, but th- there's a lot of exactly as you described, you know, just pick and choose uh, as, as the candidates come about. So um, what, uh, I guess I'll, I'll hand it over to Tyler to see if he has any other questions for you since he's the, got the burning, the, burning, uh, the questions here. <laughs> So, I mean, as a top fellowship, I mean, it must, you must get a lot of competitive applications, obviously. And you mentioned the letters of recommendation, uh, the CV, uh, the letter of interest. Uh, what things, when you're, when you're going through these individual applications, are you using to delineate the applications apart from one another and to, uh, you know, what makes, what makes the person uh, the right fit for your program? So I'll answer that and then maybe David can answer since he had to go through it. I, I, neurosurgery is a small group of people um, and vascular neurosurgery is even smaller. So recommendations matter. I mean, somebody I trust says, look, this person really works hard and they're really, really great to work with and I enjoy them and I expect great things of them. That helps me a great deal. Um, and then just, just, you know, personality, being interested, being engaged, being clear that this is what you want to do. We spend a lot of time together. I mean, I, I generally spend as much or more time with my fellows as I do with my family. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time with somebody who is uh, dysphoric or boring or malignant or um, annoying. Uh, uh, so I would avoid those things. I, I like my job. I like the people I work with. We, we kid each other. We, we, we play, we, you know, we, we, you know, before COVID we socialized together quite a bit. Uh, so I, I think uh, you can't put too high a premium on just, you know, making it clear that you're somebody who puts the team's interest above your own and you're going to be, you're going to be fun to work with. Uh, you're going to, you you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to engage. I don't know, David, what, What's your answer? What, is, what does Tyler do to get a, a fellowship job? What, what should he stay away from and what should he emphasize? Yeah, I think the you kind of hit the nail on the head. It really, it's a lot of, like Dr. Arthur mentioned, vascular is a very small field. It's a small subspecialty in a small field. And so the connections between your mentors and other uh, leaders in, in the vascular space are going to be huge. Um, I mean, it's <clears throat> when you're only taking one or two people 
for two years, you really, you want people that you know are going to fit your culture and are going to really fit, like work hard. Uh, and having a, a very good recommendation from somebody that you trust is, is massive. So that, I mean, definitely I, for you and whoever else is, is listening, reaching out to your, your home institution mentors and, and really picking their brain and having them put in phone calls and, and whatnot is, is very helpful. I mean, that's largely why or how I got to end up here uh, was, was through that type of a connection. And of course, uh, research definitely helps. Obviously, fellowships are going to want, obviously, to publish and they're going to want you to be able to help with that. So seeing some type of track record is, is helpful, but it's not the be all end all. I mean, it's in, everybody's gonna have at least some research if they're going into uh, this space, or at least for the most part. Um, but really when it comes down to it, after you're starting to enter these places, a lot of it just comes down to your personality and the culture of the place that you're going and how well those things mesh. And even with Zoom calls, you can get a pretty good feel for how well somebody interacts with your people and how well you think their personality would, would fit your culture. Uh, I mean, fellowship is obviously not as long as residency. It's only one to two years, but one year is a, considering how much time we spend together. One year is a really long time to be with somebody who's miserable uh, and doesn't really want to be there. So finding a good cultural fit is, is, is very uh, helpful overall. It uh, is a little harder to tease that out via Zoom, but it's, it's definitely not uh, not impossible. And that, that is one thing when you're looking for fellowships. I really the interactions you have with the current fellows during their interviews, I think, is is helpful. is very helpful in terms of getting a feel for what the program is actually like, what the culture is actually like. It's very helpful for me coming here to get the chance to talk to all their current fellows back when I interviewed here. Uh, they're all very happy. They're all very down to earth, uh, just normal guys that were hanging out enjoying themselves and really seem to like working with uh, everybody here, both their co-fellows, the attendings, the, even the, the staff and the techs that are great people just to hang out with. And that really came through uh, in the interview. Um, and I think that's from a fellow standpoint, now interviewing prospective fellow applicants, that's something that we also look at is just how well does that applicant uh, interact with us? How much are they how much will they fit the culture uh, of this place? And the way we interview people, it's usually for people that are coming two to three years after we interview them. So from a from us, from a current fellow standpoint, these aren't people that we're going to work with in the fellowship. But you get a you definitely get a, a sense of pride in the fellowship, and you want to see that culture and that that continuity. And so finding people that that fit uh, is, is huge. Well, thank you, David. Um... I, I did want to follow up because uh, you did touch upon another uh, question of mine about research. Um, obviously, it seems it seems a lot like you, um, you know, uh, try to get to know these people, uh, these applicants, um, based on Zoom interviews and um, on their paper application overall. And just um, you know, at this point in time, uh, most uh, residents obviously have some research, but maybe not vascular re research uh, per se. You know, uh, you know, I don't have any papers in in stroke or you know, uh, any in uh, DNS or anything that describe any kind of my vascular interest at this point. Is that a deal breaker for you guys, or um, you know, uh, what what how how much do you look into those types of publications and the number of publications, for example, when you when you uh, tease apart applicants? Yeah, it's definitely not a deal breaker. Uh, it's uh, it, it's further, it's much further down the list. I mean, at the top of the list is going to be references. It's going to be your mentors talking to folks. Second is going to be just the way that the the culture of the applicant fits in with the the culture of the fellowship. Third is probably research. Uh, it's uh, it's helpful. Uh, it is. I mean, having research in other areas is also going to be helpful because it shows that you know how to do it. it knows shows that you know kind of what what you're doing, what you're getting yourself into. So. Even having that from a in a different subspecialty or even in a different field is, is still going to be helpful. Um, obviously, if you have a bunch of vascular publications, that's going to be a, a nice adjunct to your application. I would also say that there's probably a upper limit of that, where if you have too many publications, people are going to look at you maybe a little questionably. Um, I always used to say uh, interviewing uh, residents uh, applicants. 
there was always a threshold for a lower limit of board scores. I always felt that there should be a limit for up for the, the upper board score as well, where people who scored above a certain level shouldn't get an interview because there is something wrong with them. I would also agree with that from a, from a publication standpoint. Uh, if, if you come in here and you've got 200 publications in the last two years, I'm going to wonder if you actually have a personality or an ability to interact with people on a day-to-day basis, but it's definitely not a deal breaker. I, I think it's all individualized. Tyler, in your case, uh, it's not a big deal. You don't have vascular publications because I know you're at an inferior training program where it's very hard to get anything done. <laughs> no, I strangely enough have probably taken more fellows from Baylor residency than anywhere else. Uh, so That's right, yeah. I'm, I'm teasing you. Uh, um, I, 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 it's, it's phenomenal, phenomenal training program. Uh, I, 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 I don't think not having vascular research hurts you, but I do think um, having more research helps you and having some vascular research probably helps you even further. So uh, you, can, you can get a fellowship without having done it, but if you haven't done any research, that's going to look weird, unfortunately, next to peers who, who do have that um, because it is pretty common for people to be able to do some research during residency in neurosurgery. Uh, I want to go to one last scenario here, which is, uh, so Tyler, as our example, has, um, let's say he's applied, uh, he's interviewed with you guys, you both like each other. What should he do next? Just email you, I want to come there, have a mentor call. Um, What is the typical way that you guys do the, are we a match after the initial interview um, sort of matchmaking? I try and and don't always succeed to communicate very clearly. And so I try to tell applicants what our timetable is and what the next contact will be. It would be relatively typical after an interview for me to say, look, take a a little time to think about how you feel about the place. Uh, Email me or call me with any questions. And when you know what your timetable is and what you want, you know, let me know. And so typically somebody would, you know, write back and say, um, I'm going to interview at some other places <laughs> or, uh, you know, I really liked Memphis and I'd take the job if you offered it to me right now. Um, I, I think it really is just kind of um, a, a, a negotiation, you know, at the time. The other thing is that it's not binding, right? So when I offer a fellowship job to somebody, I typically do it verbally and then follow up with a, a written email that sort of lays it out and ask them to respond in a written way, but there's no contract. Um, But I I will say, because it's a small community, bad behavior is not worth it. Um, I recently, I'm not gonna name names, but I recently had a um, a resident uh, apply for fellowship here, and I was pretty sure that the resident already had accepted a fellowship elsewhere. And and so I called the other fellowship program director and was like, hey, um, is this person going to do their fellowship with you? And, and he was like, yeah, yeah, they are. And so uh, then I had to say to the applicant, so um, what's going on? Have you already accepted a spot elsewhere? And it was, it was a little awkward. Um, I, I, would, I would recommend against that. You know, you, 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 uh, you know, people talk. I mean, this is a great example, right? So by whatever coincidence, Tyler, you know, your, your chair is one of my best friends on the planet. Our kids know each other really well, right? So, uh, you know, I can find out about you and he can, he can tell me about you. And, and, and then the, where David trained his chair, well, he was two years above uh, Ganesh and I, the same training program. Like, again, like our, our wives know each other. We're really good friends. Um, uh, I mean, that's true. You know, JJ, you train with, with Mike. I mean, Mike and I have taught so many times together, so many different places, spent a lot of time together. It's one of the things I like about the field is that we all know each other, but I think, um, you know, coming at this from a young age, it's easy to underestimate how interconnected it is and, and being used to ERAS and, you know, med school applications. When you start to realize just how small this is and how much everybody knows each other, to me, the emphasis is you should be genuine and don't even think about playing games. Yeah, I would second that. I, I, so I guess that was the, the underlying point that I wanted to kind of get from you was that 
it is okay, I think, to say, hey, I have a few more interviews and because there's no direct timeline. I think you have to be relatively honest about that. Um, and I don't think it's going to turn you off necessarily if someone else says I've got you know, two more interviews and this is the timeline of them and I'm a decision at this point or something like that, right? I mean, I think that's a fair thing to, fair thing to say. Um, okay, fair enough. Uh, one last question for you from my perspective is, is, do you think that this general way that Cerebro goes about their fellowships and the timeline applies to all the other or many of the other subspecialties in neurosurgery, like spine and, and do you have any sense of that spine? It absolutely doesn't. So the best organized is pediatrics. There's an actual match um, and a real timeline. So uh, Tyler's anxiety would be well-treated uh, by uh, becoming a pediatric neurosurgeon. The uh, spine fellowships are a little closer to vascular in terms of the competitive ones filling probably three years in advance and there's no match. Um, and just like we've got neurology and radiology, they've got, you know, ortho and neuro. So it's, it's still a little bit of a mix. I mean, to be clear, we, we do take applicants from radiology and neurology too. Uh, it's a multidisciplinary field. I, I think it's a good thing about our fellowship that we have neurology staff and radiology staff. It really enriches uh, the experience and, and, the, and the perspectives. And then functional, there's no organized um, way of going about it. The most, the most competitive functional fellowships, I think, do fill uh, roughly three years in advance. Um, so it, it really is kind of all over uh, the map. As it is for vascular, I think. I mean, I think I think it's kind of a, a bit of a microcosm, like you say, with the exception maybe of peds. Um, is my is my general um, general thoughts on that. Uh, I guess the only other question is is that what do you what do you this is a this is a very very um, impactful field in my mind for impacting patients' lives and things like that. Um, there's a question that we had here, and maybe I'll let Tyler ask it, which is a uh, how do you generally counsel folks about the lifestyle of vascular. Did you have any questions about that, Tyler? Or is that someone yeah, else? Yeah, I, I think uh, every every time I mention, even to my co-residents that I'm interested in vascular, the uh, response is usually that, uh, you know, I don't want to have a life where they, they kind of like uh, look at me strangely and, and think, and they're like, oh, well, you'd be doing strokes the rest of your life. And do you not like your family and things like that? So I don't know, I guess, you know, that, that's one of the things that honestly made me on the fence in the beginning about considering vascular more seriously. Uh, now that I sort of accepted that uh, going into my vascular rotations and uh, residency, it made me realize that, you know, it's a give and take, obviously. But what, what's your response to those sort of criticisms? And, and what would you say to those people that are sort of on the fence about applying? When I was in medical school at UVA, I worked for a neurosurgeon there named Neil Cassell. And without going into details, working between college and medical school for Neil made me sure of one thing, and that was I was not going to be a neurosurgeon under any circumstances, right? Uh, I saw what his life was like. I saw what the residents' life were like, and I was just like, man, you know, I'm going to med school and do something else. Right on. And then, like, third year, I'm trying to figure out what to do, right? And I went and I did a shift in the ER as a third-year student. And the eight hours took approximately 34 hours uh, subjective time. Uh, the most interesting thing was when I pushed adenosine on a guy with an arrhythmia. I mean, every other interesting patient that came through the ER was just whisked away by somebody else. And then I realized that the ER doctors who were senior were doing a, roughly the same thing I was doing as a third year med student. And I was like, man, I, I don't want to do that. Right. And, and then I would go and I'd spend all night working with the residents, you know, helping them and, and, you know, 12 hours would take about, you know, 45 minutes. And, and so uh, I, I realized that, uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. My best friend in med school was a guy named Andrew Reese, who's a pediatrician in Miami now. And we used to lift weights together. And I remember one day we were lifting weights and I was like, hey, I haven't seen you. How are rotations going? He's like, oh, great. I'm on peds. I really love peds. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, um, I'm in the well baby clinic. And yesterday this woman came in and, you know, she's got a newborn and her milk hasn't let down and she's not sleeping and the baby's not sleeping and she feels broken and she's trying to breastfeed the baby. And I was like, oh man. Um, so what'd you do? And he's like, well, I just talked to her for like 45 minutes and she was crying. And I think I really made her feel better. And I was like, well, wait, but what, what was the medical problem? And he's like, there, there wasn't a medical problem. I mean, you know, her milk will let down eventually. 
And I was like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. So a woman cried at you for 45 minutes about something you couldn't do anything to fix. That's what you did? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, well, what about you? I'm like, oh, I'm, I've been on neurosurgery and this guy fell out of a third story window and, and uh, the residents let me like put the skull together and you know we had to take out this hematoma and it was under the microscope, it was amazing. And he goes, oh, well, how long were you in the OR? I was like, I was there until 2.30 in the morning. And he, and, and he said, well, how's the patient doing? I'm like, oh, terrible. He's intubated in the ICU, he's doing terrible. <laughs> and Andrew's like, that, that sounds awful. That was good for you, that was fun. <laughs> And I was like, hey, I think, you know, maybe we're going to be very different kinds of doctors. Uh, you know, and we are. So I think that's true in neurosurgery, too. I, one of the reasons why I didn't want to be a neurosurgeon is that I saw a disruption of the family life, but I have a really good family. I mean, I know maybe you find that hard to believe after talking to me and knowing what I do for a living, but I'm still on my first marriage and working hard not to uh, screw that up. My wife's amazing. I have three phenomenal kids. Um, being um, uh, more successful in vascular has offered opportunities for us to travel internationally together. I've taken my kids for neurosurgery meetings to Egypt and, and Asia, <laughs> Paris. Uh, they, they got used to going to Edinburgh every June. And, and, they, and they're like, well, how come we're not going to Edinburgh this year, dad? Um, I think there are you know, slider bars on your dashboard of, of what's important to you. And it's the same slider bars that you had coming out of med school, right? Um, do you wanna be intimately involved in patients or do you not wanna be intimately involved? If you don't wanna be intimately involved in patients, you can be a radiologist, you can be a pathologist, you can barely hardly see one, right? Um, do you wanna be a specialist or do you wanna be a generalist? I mean, you know, uh, one of my colleagues was joking that uh, they were on a plane and somebody said, is there a doctor here? And he and his wife are both doctors and he almost rang the call bell and his wife turned in and was like, I'm pretty sure they don't have a million dollars of equipment and four people to help you. What are you going right. to do? Right? Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I think I'm a good surgeon. You know, give me uh, the, the million dollars and the four people. I can do a good job on an aneurysm or whatever. But an ER doctor or a, a family practice doctor, they know how to really be a doctor for all kinds of medical problems that I know nothing about. I made that decision long ago. Do you want predictable hours? Is that really important to you? I, I will take the trade-off. Um, that my hours sometimes are bad because I get to save people's lives. That, you know, thrombectomy is the penicillin of modern medicine. We get to save people's lives every freaking week. It's unbelievable. I, I get to restore function, you know, where the general surgeons are walking around asking if somebody's passed gas or not, right? Uh, I, it's a good trade off for me. But, you know, there's downsides to that. Yes. Sometimes I'm tired because I went in at three o'clock in the morning. And as I get older, that gets harder. And yes, um, sometimes patients do terribly and they die. And I have to talk to their families about how terrible it was. If you can't get a charge out of saving people's lives, you're never going to be able to withstand the, the psychological pressure of having people burned up. But I mean, I'm in my office. I got a cardboard box over here that, that is, I think, my fourth one now filled with letters that I greedily keep because I, I need that. I need to store up the thanks so that, you know, when David and I go in tomorrow at 2 a.m. and it doesn't go right, I don't decide that I'm a piece of crap and my life is worthless. So um, there is no question that your hours will be more predictable if you're a functional neurosurgeon than if you're a vascular neurosurgeon. But there is no question that for people like JJ or David or myself, this is not a, hmm, maybe, maybe I need to think about this more. I mean, I, I, I love my job so much. And, and my wife who, you know, she doesn't hate me. She likes to be with me. I like to be with her. She loves that I love my job too. And we're in this together. So there's a lot of messiness. I'll tell you in my household, we're like a 1950s family in some ways and that my wife doesn't work outside the home. And, and that, I, I don't know that I could do what I do in my career without everything that she does for us. I mean, if somebody hurts her or takes her out, you're probably going to find me in a pool of my own filth, unable to work the locks of my house and be able to do anything. I don't, I don't know how to function. She's, she's, she is the major part of what we do together. Um, but but I but I have colleagues in vascular neurosurgery whose wives are also physicians. I think that's hard, and they have to achieve a different balance. So 
I, I hate that my answers to you are often waffling. You know, uh, that there isn't a clear cut, obvious answer for everyone. But I, but I will say that my experience is that if you really love vascular neurosurgery, there are ways to make it work and still have a rich, good family life where you are present and involved in your relationship with your mate and in your relationship with children if you choose to have children. Um, there's no question that that's possible. It just, it just uh, it, it's going to require some work. If, if you're somebody who simply can't get up in the middle of the night, you don't ever want to do that, then yeah, don't do vascular. But, but there, are, there are good things. But I mean, two nights ago, we had to go in the middle of the night you know, to do a, a stroke. And it was David and I, um, uh, both of us here on this podcast. Uh, there were a lot of things about that case that were difficult, um, including a long wake time, a very sick patient. But it was a great case. And, and I have the luxury of working with a board eligible surgeon uh, who's in his second year of fellowship. And honestly, he did the case. I mean, at one point I was bagging the patient while he was doing the thrombectomy. I, 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 I love that. I, I love where I am in my life that I get to work with brilliant, uh, charismatic, funny, young surgeons. And I started as kind of a case hound. Um, it's one of the reasons why I went to Memphis for my fellowship is I just I was like, I have to do a bajillion cases. And, and I'm not anymore. Uh, I, I'm getting grayer and older. And now I, I think I get more of a kick out of seeing my fellow do an amazing job than I do out of doing an amazing job myself. And it's weird because it didn't used to be like that. Um, and, and, and so you just you pay attention to that. When I do a really difficult case, like uh, you know, take out a big ruptured posterior fossa AVM or something terrible, now instead of in the middle of that physical exhaustion, feeling exhilarated that I did something that I know a lot of people can't do, I feel relieved that I didn't hurt the patient. And that's a huge change over the last you know, decade of my life. And I'm paying attention to that and realizing that um, I need to transition into you know, doing other things, but you can do that. Remember I told you the ER, I felt like the senior ER doctors and the junior ER doctors were still doing exactly the same thing. And that's not true in, in, in academic neurosurgery. You, you, there's evolution, you know, you, you're, you're doing different things. The three-legged stool of clinical research, teaching and clinical care, um, it's very active there. Um, I, I, have, I have big components of my life involved in doing big multicenter clinical trials, which I get a huge charge out of, um, and then teaching amazing residents and fellows in addition to uh, that relationship with the patient. So a very long-winded and complex answer to a well-intentioned and simple question. I apologize. No, I think it's a great answer, though. I would, I would actually not add anything to that. I will say that I'm actually married to another physician. There you go. It does require a fair amount of balancing schedules and, you know, and coordination, but it's certainly doable. We have three young children also. Um, there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's time to go around, um, but it does make for a lively, a lively uh, call schedule for sure. Um, no question. Uh, I think that's all the questions that I had written down to ask you, Tyler, or, or David, any other, any other things to interject here? Um, no, um, but thank you, Dr. Arthur and David, for, for answering our questions. And, um, and I apologize ahead of time that you'll be receiving my application uh, <laughs> soon. And so, uh, you know, try to try to remember happy thoughts about the podcast uh, when you're reviewing it, please. You don't need to apologize, man. I mean, I'm not going to spend much time on it anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no it's it, it's, uh, I mean, just to kind of echo a lot of what Dr. Arthur just said, it's, it's an awesome field. It's absolutely chaotic and it's a crazy lifestyle, but I love almost every minute of it. It, uh, it's fantastic. I mean, just yesterday I was running all over town. We had a bunch of cases at one hospital in the morning, a bunch in the afternoon at the other hospital. I was driving back and forth. I had to run to the clinic real quick to sign some forms and all in this whole time I was trying to put together a presentation that I had to do this morning just zipping all over town just with my hair on fire all day long i was sitting in my office at six o'clock working on the surgical video and kind of just rehashing it and my three and five-year-old daughter come walking in the room just and they're, they're like what what is that as they're just sitting here watching me go through the surgical video 
And I kind of explained some things. They asked a bunch of questions. And at the very end, my five-year-old is very like proud dad moment. But she was like, daddy, I'm going to be a little nervous when I do that the first time. <laughs> uh, and I was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was my daughter. She, she sees kind of the, the passion uh, that, that we have for, for this job and for this work. And she, she wants to do that. She wants to be the next Shelly Timmons or Lola Chambliss. Like I'm totally cool with all of that. would love to see that happen. But yeah, I think the biggest thing as Dr. Arthur was kind of alluding to is just, I mean, your number of hours you can spend with your wife and your family are going to be a little bit limited. You just have to make sure you, you live those hours intentionally and just, I mean, really focus on them when, when you have that opportunity, but it's, it's a fantastic job. We get, we're incredibly blessed to do what we do. And, and it's not so bad. I mean, work hard, play hard, love hard. I mean, David now in his fellowship, when he's on call for the weekend, one of our fellows says that it's a bad weekend if they don't get 20 cases in a weekend. So he's going to be busy, but, but he's on one weekend in four, right? The other three weekends he's off and he's got a great family. So I, I you know, I, I think even during training, it's possible to have good quality of life. Yeah, I agree. And the same thing I tell the, we have this conversation, Michael and I, and on the webinars about medical students, who who should go into, who should go into neurosurgery. Right. And, uh, and we always say, if you, if you experience it and you absolutely love it and you're going to be miserable, you know, doing something else, just like Dr. Arthur said about ER doctors versus neurosurgery, then you're going to love it. And and I think that, I think that's true. And you'll make, you'll make life work around it. And um, I think it's true for this too. If you're a neurosurgeon, you do it. And it's just like, what interests you? And it's just, you just can't really see a happy future doing X, Y, Z, other subspecialty or general. And this is probably for you. And, and it's very reasonable. You can make a, a really wonderful life out of it and make really great impact on patients. So it's probably the same concept uh, for both, for both uh, decisions you have to make. Oh, this has been an incredibly profound conversation. And uh, I really appreciate all of you spending some time with us. And as is apparent, you guys are very busy. So um, getting everyone together was uh, a treat for me and, and sure for a lot of people out there. Um, so Dr. Arthur, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks guys. Dr. Dornbos, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And Dr. Lazaro, thank you and, and good luck. Oh, thank you. You too. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day and we look forward to next time.